UX Podcast Episode 248. Hello everybody, welcome to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, James Roy Lawson and Per Axbom. With listeners in 196 countries and territories in the world, from Reunion to Togo. And today we are speaking to Ola Berg. He calls himself a change strategist and an agile guide. He's a person who hopes to help people understand each other, to feel better and work better together and happens to be really, really good at doing this. The best introduction to Ola comes from his own LinkedIn page. Here's what he writes. I have this vision that every workplace should be a safe and exciting environment where people look after each other and are super productive. Not because they are superhumans, but because of the great procedures, the great collaborations, and the great culture. Ola, I, I'm I'm really curious about uh, how do you how do you get this passion for agile that uh, that you obviously have? Uh, I mean, it's 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 what you breathe, it's what you post about, it's it, and I'm learning so much from all your LinkedIn posts, for example. But it seems like you're thinking about agile all the time. But how did it start for you? Well, thing is that I'm I'm thinking all the time, uh, and uh, being a software developer for for many years and uh, I kind of uh, realized pretty soon working with software in in, uh, in in the real adult life not not as a hobby programmer but in the real adult life I realized pretty soon that the problem wasn't so much having the computers understanding uh, us humans but having us humans understanding each other if we were to make systems that uh, together or if we should make systems for each other and so on so uh, I, up to that point, I haven't really been interested in in in, in things like team dynamics and uh, and uh, how people work together and so on, uh, because I was kind of a more more computer nerdy guy, I guess. And when I looked into what was then called lightweight development methods or iterative incremental development iid or, or something like that back in the days late 90s early uh, beginning of the uh, 2000 and so on we um it was like a world open for me that actually this is this is about people people communicating so i got obsessed by communication and how do people interact and how do people understand each other and that so much of our well-being and not being so well at work is directly linked to how we treat each other and how we, uh, yeah, how how we uh, how we do it. So, so it, at that time, it became a mission because it has to do with how people felt and how how healthy they are. Were fascinating. It sounds so similar to to my experience with UX. I was also that like computer nerdy guy and then you, you start thinking about well it's really about the people using the products and services but you, it sounds like you're even taking that one step further into the health of the people working within the company will determine the success of the company yeah and that is not something that i do but but that was 
I mean, this things that we call agile and so forth, is, it is nothing new. It's it's not even from the year two thousand and one where the so-called agile manifesto was was created. It's it has roots further uh, down in, in in history, and the realization that that in order to make good work, you as a worker must feel good. That is a realization that has uh, is is uh, that has been taught over and over again in history and discovered over and over again in history and one of the uh, the roots to agile agile software development is in the quality movement of the 80s and uh, before that uh, lean production or toyota production system and what the people pioneers uh, at toyota and in the quality management system total quality management uh, uh, traditions they discovered early on that the trick is to create a system, a development system or a production system that takes care of the workers. And if the system takes care of the workers, making the workers feel good, then the products will be good. And people using the products will feel good and be good. So it, uh, that you have to start there. This is so interesting because... Yeah, because we talk about like human-centered design. Um, and, it, and I've wondered... Well, this makes me think about the fact we say human-centered design. So we're we're adding a category to the end of it. Whereas what you're, my way of looking at what you've just said is human-centered is actually what you're saying is, is enough. We don't have to say human-centered organization, human-centered product, human-centered whatever. It's human-centered. Yeah, basically. Even though I can think, think that there are there is benefit in. in in explicitly stating out that now we are focusing on the organization, now we're focusing on the collaboration, on, on, on the so, so, so that we can put the the light on certain things. Uh, I guess that's that's important for us to understanding. But but to always have this human center in everything that we do, that the, that that this profound humanism is must always be at the center of what we do. You mentioned that we we. Uh keep rediscovering this fact really why do we keep forgetting it there are many intuitions around work for instance that that we people tend to have if it's fun it's probably not not that valuable it it should be tedious if if it's supposed to to produce value probably because we our intuitions of value and work i i guess that they were formed many, many thousand years ago when we were living uh, on the savanna, digging for edible roots. And basically, if you were to eat many roots, you have to dig a lot. Digging is boring, but the fruit of your work, the, the fruit of your labor, uh, the eating the roots is good. So, so uh, I guess that the intuition, you have to work hard, and then you can enjoy the, the fruits of your labor. I, I guess that that intuition has, has come as well, so, so that you see that there's kind of a... You put work and enjoying the fruit of the labor as two opposite things, and you don't see that. Well, this can be in harmony. Yeah, I guess it comes from the the, the basic economics of it. That um, you know, if you're doing some work for someone else, it's that you have you have valued the reward for doing that work greater oh, than than the time you would have been spent otherwise because it enables you to do more things. So so you're doing something that's less valuable. The actual task is less valuable to you. Otherwise, you do it. So you do something else yourself. You're getting a reward for that, and then you're using that reward to enable you to do something that's worth even more. So I guess the, the whole economics behind work is that 
you're doing something you wouldn't do otherwise because you need the reward. And that's not fun, you could, you could argue. <laughs> yeah, that that could, could probably um, explain a, a bit. Also that we have intuitions around leadership and uh, uh, who's to decide. I mean, if, if I'm in a, in a system where, where you make the decisions for me, uh, then uh, I should not really complain if you make decisions that, 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 that I wouldn't do because I kind of accept this, that system. But that doesn't mean that it has to be that way. I mean, you, you could, even if you have had the, the power over me, you could still ask me, uh, what do you think, Oland? And how, how can we create a win-win situation, you and me, even though I'm, I'm your boss? Uh, but since that's not necessarily the case, and uh, in many times in, in history, we, we, we people tend to slip down to a situation where, where one person is, is uh, telling others what to do and, and expect obedience and, and, uh, and so on. So, so I think that there's also a natural tendency of uh, with authority and that kind of relationship that or relations that that uh, gravitates towards that so i think that's also a contributing factor that we tend to forget it seems against our intuitions that people could have fun and doing productive labor at the same time it seems against our intuitions that that the people on the on the lowest level of the hierarchy could make decisions and uh, and those decisions be more more profitable for the whole organization than if someone higher up did it. It's interesting when you think as well about how it, when, you're, when you're looking towards the customers, so a, an organization, a business and its customers, I mean, there it feels like it's more understood that um, you need to make your customers happy. There needs to be you know, a, a collaboration there between the business and the organization so that it's mutually beneficial you buy that product, the company makes some profit from it, but you get some utility and enjoyment from the product. Whereas if we're looking internally then about in, in the work we're doing as employees, maybe that relationship isn't quite as, as obvious. Mm-hmm. Probably, yes. The, the relationships between many things that happen in an organization and how that relates to value is not very obvious often. I mean, it... Uh, uh, for one person looking at the organizational chart, they might see that this is how our organization looks and they might believe then that the value is created within the, the boxes of the chart. But in, in reality, the value could be created in, 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 in relations between people who are in very, very different boxes. As, uh, as we used to put it in, in, in Lean and Agile, we say that the value streams runs across the organization on different levels and back and forth. And that is not obvious. Also, if you look at, for instance, you ask HR, how, how does our performance management system, well, what does that look like? And they, they tell you what it looks like. And, and you can see that, well, this is, is obviously not how we create value, but to the people creating the performance management system, that was not, not uh, obvious. So a lo- I think that a lot of the relationships between what is done and the value that is produced. I think that is very obscure in many organizations. And that is also why in lean and agile methods, we we focus so much on visualizing this. How are things working together? What what are the connections? Who, who is dependent on, on, on who and how, how does value flow? We, we try to make this visual so that everyone in the organization understands how value is created. You're obviously a person who who goes into companies and helps them uh, understand why their intuitions may be wrong, why their understanding of the problem 
may be wrong. Where where do you where do you start? Yes. How do you go about changing people's minds essentially? That's really the the key thing because you need to be able to build rapport, having them having some kind of faith and confidence in what you're about to tell them, and then you tell them things that they don't initially believe. Especially, it seems like the higher up in the in the management hierarchy, you 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 sit your views on what is 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 actually happening in organization is is very uh, obscured and blurred which is why 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 Toyota always have this this principle of hey manager you need to go down and see on the on the shop floor see with your own eyes what's happening they 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 work very actively with 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 removing that that disconnection uh, connection but uh, in Many organizations, in normal organizations, there is a disconnect, which means that I am uh, brought in to to help them because they have they feel that there is is something that is wrong here. They they feel that they could work faster, they could work produce more value, they they could uh, be better in in replanning and and change direction and or whatever they want to do. And I try to point out where I can see that the root cause to their problems are. And obviously that goes against their beliefs. So how do we change that? Well, by being careful, uh, really, and expose these things uh, in a steady but but uh, still slow and careful manner. Because it can really be shocking at, at times. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, going against your own belief system, that's hard as a human. And so, I mean, I guess it sometimes it usually takes years for someone to change position on something that they've believed for many, many years. Yes. Well, I guess, isn't there something to do connected to the fact that, you know, management, a lot of management will have gone to maybe business school or been part of, of business education. And what they're taught in those courses, perhaps maybe 20, 30 years ago, is a very particular view of the world and how we should be worked. The, I guess very much related to um, production lines. In many yeah. situations, and and those production line ways of thinking, and ways of of um, pushing your resources in a production line environment, um, is maybe not applicable to how we need to motivate, push, and organize our resources. Resources when it's a, a thinking economy, and thinking organizations. Definitely so, uh, but even then, I, I would I would say that that what. People were taught in, in business schools in the 90s and, and, and forward are actually uh, not very suited for production lines as well. The, the times where uh, production lines uh, were really improved and the logistics were improved and what, what paved the way for, for the globalization of the 90s was very much... Uh, the insights from Toyota and the insights from the quality management uh, traditions and the insights from from uh, flow thinking of of logistics. What I think that that people in in business schools uh, were taught uh, from the nineties and forward was basically going back even further. They got a picture of value creation that was wrong by then as well. That were more suited for for how value was was created like in 1910 or 1920 or, or something like that 
perhaps even earlier, I guess we're going back to the Industrial Revolution. Basically, yes. Basically, yes. So I, I think that during the 90s, there was a step backwards. But but uh, some some things were, were definitely better uh, by then. We had all the, the, the technical uh, revolution that, that made... Uh, made uh, it uh, with with computers we could use uh, resources more efficiently we got a lot of innovation going uh, we also got uh, got a political change that opened up for globalization and international trade and so forth but i would say that that very much of those those uh, good things that were happening in the 90s was in spite of the management philosophy of the time not thanks to it and what we see now is uh, is uh, maybe where the that management philosophy has reached the end of of the line, so to speak, and we need to to um, grow f- further. There is <clears throat> a really interesting thing, um, an effect here that when when um, a technical uh, invention breaks through and and, and we start to to reap the benefits from that. Uh, in order to reap the real good benefits from it, we need to have like like thirty years or so of social invention. How we how we organize around this uh, technical invention? How we how we form new companies, new organizations, new ways of of leading, new ways of interaction, and so forth. Before we 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 actually can reap the benefits from it. Uh, if it as someone said, if 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 many of those, so to speak, laws or tendencies that we have that that uh, computers get so and so much faster every year and and memory is so much and broadband so much faster and so forth, even if that uh, development were to stop right now today, then we would still uh, have uh, be able to reap the benefits from those uh, inventions for thirty or so years if. Uh, we uh, are, are, are to believe what's happened historically because the real power comes from how we uh, reorganize around the invention so so we haven't i think that w- what we're seeing now is the pressing need of reorganizing socially around uh, a world when almost everyone has internet access and, and we have uh, computers uh, everywhere and, and so forth that the things that we we got thirty years ago, basically that that uh, that we now definitely have, and now we need to to reorganize uh, in order to to reap the benefits. and And I see th- see that what, what we are doing with lean and agile is basically going back to those uh, management traditions and and those ways of of doing things from from the eighties that we could see is very very suitable for the the kind of world we live in now. I can think, think it's um, quite a it's really quite a challenge though because if we're saying like there needs to be social change effectively over a sustained period um, thirty years um, then that implies that you need a degree of stability over a sustained period for that change to reap most benefit now if you look at how we've at what things have happened over the last thirty years we've we've gone from um, you know home computers computers in the workplace email um internet social media the mobile phones this there's not a period of more than 10 years of stability when it comes to the underlying technology and the way that we're working so that surely adds a, an, an extra challenge and dimension to 
the social uh, changes that are needed in order to root the benefits. Yeah, I, I think that, that we have that there, there are two things. You need stability, uh, and you could say that, well, what we have had during the last 30 years has been a stable progress. I mean, the, the, the improvements have been, or inventions have been incremental more than ever. We, 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 we got internet connection 30 years ago, and, and nothing revolutionary has happened with that, besides that it has become more wireless and more ubiquitous and, and, and more effective. Also, the, the the computing devices has been smaller and, and and handier and so forth, but it's still a it's still a progression within the same paradigm. Uh, we don't have had really any system shocks that is so needed in order to for us to let go of the old ways of doing things. For instance, if you if you look at the uh, the after the World War II. Uh, up until the yeah through the 60s up until to the 70s to the oil crisis basically there we saw how we could reap the benefits of modern production modern life and, and so forth that that was no really technical invention the technical inventions there had been done before and during the world war 2 after the world war 2 with the the uh, new power balances in the world and uh, old uh, like the british empire in decline and the the us came for further and and and, and so forth and uh, at the end of that period we had had a beginning of the asian wonder there we needed that kind of of uh, disrupting event that were happening on basically on a social scale which was the world war 2 so in order to enable these social inventions historically we have there had been a need for a disruptive event. So, Ola, do you think what we're going through now uh, with the pandemic, do you think that perhaps is the social event? If we, if we look at the technology side of things being an incremental change over the last uh, maybe 30 years, that is is what we're doing now with so much working from home and working remotely and so on, um, and mass unemployment on a scale that we've not seen for generations. Is this the social event that maybe will be a catalyst? I think that that is one of the things. I mean, do we have, for instance, acceptance for for uh, remote meetings? I mean, if this is recorded during the pandemic and we are sitting in 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 separate corners of uh, of, of Sweden, basically, or at least Stockholm area, um, if it had been before, we have been sitting together in the same room, right? Probably, and um, uh, could be what, what we're seeing from from the perspective of of agile and and how how things are going that we see that. Uh, there are many organizations, uh, especially public organizations, public sector organizations, where where there have been a lot of uh, command and control uh, that management has not allowed people to work from home. For instance, they have they they haven't felt secure that okay these people are going to to do any value. And and many of them, those organizations, have reported that they create actually create more value now than ever because you, you, the organization. The organizations they have to to delegate the power to to the workers to to decide for themselves what I'm going to do because the 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 original control structures aren't there anymore, and we've seen an increase in in, in productivity, uh, which you often see when you delegate power to the people on the so to speak shop floor, uh, for them to decide and, and and see where where do we see we can do the most useful work right now where where can we see that values is uh, is produced, so. And many organizations that hasn't dared 
to to let go of that kind of of control now they have to and all of a sudden it, they see for themselves that hey actually this works this is not a, a theoretical concept we, we we don't have to sit in in our boardroom and and make this decision should we allow people to work from home we have to and let's see what's happening and it's basically and, and, and it really isn't about working from home but it's working uh, in a, in where where you working f- uh, where you decide for yourself where can I much more than than, than you than you, you usually do? Yeah, I think it's the flexibility too, isn't it, Ola? That the, I mean, if looking at how people are working now and the kind of things that crop up in conversations, people are being more human centered. Going back to what we started with, that they're they're actually pausing their paid work um, at a time of the day maybe when they wouldn't normally to do something that actually makes them feel better as a human or makes their life better. Um, for example, maybe go go and get their hair cut at eleven o'clock in the morning, or or helping a child, or um, yeah. you know, there's flexibility in the in, in your life at a different level when you're working remotely compared to being in an office um, yeah. all the day. And 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 also, I think with the with the coming unemployment and uh, people feel that hey, we're going to have a downturn in in the economy. What what really is um, needed then? is the ability to be flexible, the ability to think things over again, look and say, okay, hey, I, well, what is happening? I'm unemployed because the way I were producing value uh, isn't really valid anymore, but that doesn't mean that I can't produce value. Value. Let's see if I can produce value in another way, uh, using new technology or, 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 or think, come up with new ideas. So, so um, I also think that that when, in order to, to have a, good economy uh, where people can can flourish good in 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 every way sustainable and and uh, and, and and good for people we um, we need to kind of optimize for our ability to be flexible and here is what i believe that the agile ways of working is uh, a part of those kind of social inventions that we need to to learn about and need to practice in order to be be able to be flexible and and uh, come up with new ideas on how to how to create value because yeah agility is uh, synonymous with uh, with flexibility right i love how you're emphasizing how how power structures are changing as well in the ways that we are working now during the pandemic because i mean that is so much part of your message about giving the power back to the workers and and building trust uh, and allowing them to make their own decisions in a way that perhaps traditional management does not allow. Uh, do you think this will continue? Do you think people realize this? I guess that it will be uh, both ways. I guess there will always be a backlash, of course. And uh, there is this, um, I mean, there is this notion that, okay, uh, if we are to, uh, how, how do we empower people? Well, we let go of everything. Laissez-faire is is synonymous with uh, with empowering people, and that is definitely not true, because if you if you have a if you have a power structure uh, where where some people make certain decisions and some people make other kind of decisions and so forth, and all of a sudden uh, many of those decision makers disappear from from the scene, uh, that doesn't mean that you automatically empower people or, or or that that the what comes after that will be good. Because this ability to make uh, decisions 
in your local team, in your local group, uh, find out what, what is the most valuable thing we can do and so forth. That is an ability that needs to be trained and you, you need to work on it. It, it, is, uh, it is not enough to just disrupt uh, the existing power structure. You actually need to build uh, something new and you need to train this cap- capability. And what I see is that, that many organizations, they... So, some of them they they get this this uh, part with yes we need to uh, we need to tear down the the existing power structures but they forget about we need to build up the new ones and when they do that uh, there will be a catastrophe uh, and people will not feel very well they will be badly treated because just having the getting the the the, the freedom but no no means of of, of uh, handling that freedom in a productive sound way that is sound for everyone uh, will lead to new power structures that will will not necessarily be be any better so we must build the replacement power structures pretty consciously if we want this to to happen and, and have a good effect and that is something i see very, over and over again in organizations that they underestimate what it takes to build a, a flexible power structure where, where you can delegate a lot of power to, to the workers. So they run fast to, to, to demolish the old system. And running quickly to demolish the old one, they, they stumble into the situation where they realize they haven't de- designed or, or thought about the new one. Yeah, basically that, that there are two two ditches on, on, on each side of the road here. And, and m- the majority of the organizations, they don't dare to, to, to remove their existing power structures. So they're trying to keep the existing power structures and build a, a so-called agile parallel power structure. And those two power structures, they will just uh, keep each, each other hostages. And the other ditch is to, to where they just tear down the existing power structure and then without replacing it with an, an, uh, an, anything and then... then uh, catastrophe answers and the the middle of uh, the road here is to to deconstruct the existing power structure and transform it into something else very consciously and and uh, uh, careful steady but careful what strikes me when i'm listening to this is that i mean this implies that everyone has the interest of the organization uh, as the first thing in mind whereas of course lots of people have their self-interest in mind which means that people will scramble to actually do what gives them the most power in some instances. And it's, it sounds like that would be one of the really difficult things to to mitigate and make sure that people don't gain that power. And what you were saying about new power structures appearing if you haven't really designed it in the way that you want to. Yeah. Uh, and I, I guess that this, this must be the, the same problem that you have with UX, right? Because in theory, everyone can was interested in the in the user and the user experience, and and that the design is is uh, is good for for the user. But in a large organization, many people, uh, when push comes to show, they they really aren't that much into the user. They are much more into their own safety, their own uh, or, or or their own claim to fame with within the organization and so forth. So the um, the uh, strategy or tactic that we use uh, in Agile is to make this visible. Try to, to um, visualize how different actions affect 
the organization and the quality and uh, and uh, of, of 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 the work we do and and the value so that uh, and also visualize it fast so that there's a much clearer link between people's behavior in the organization and the outcome which means that that destructive behavior should be should be seen the destruction it makes should be seen very uh, quickly so we use visualization uh, like uh, and, and and transparency tools to make this kind of uh, awakened nervous system within the organization if you if you look at the organization as an organism the visualization the feedback loops the the transparency becomes a nervous system so that the whole organization reacts as soon as a part of the organization starts to behave in a way that isn't good for for the whole and i uh, guess you could do the same in a in a good design system okay right if you if you work uh, with explorative uh, or or if you if you work with with uh, users and user experiments continuously and make the results of them uh, visible then you would would uh, call out any behavior that is not in the interest of the user. In the same way, we do uh, try to visualize what's happening in a way that calls out any behavior that is not good for the organization. Yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of this ties to being ties back to the classic prisoner's dilemma um, experiments, where you know you can short term you can trick each other and and you try and maximize your your selfish profits by doing a certain decision but if you work together you actually get most returns over a, over, the, over a longer period um but you have to have that trust that both of you are going to work together to to maximize returns for both of you um and yeah. and that's the same thing when we're working with you know with user experience or design you say well you know if we do this if we optimize, optimize this too much we're we're going to maximize maybe short-term revenues but long-term people are going to be really fed up with the way that we're tricking them or way that we're deceiving them or that we're we're putting too much emphasis on the company's um, um benefits or what the gains rather than the gains for the individual the user yeah exactly and and what what is needed in order to have a a positive net outcome in the prisoner's dilemma are are those two things trust and and or transparency yes if if people in in those experiments had the the information what the others were to to uh, to decide then uh, everyone in the system could optimize for the whole system yes you collaborate and you maximize yeah the, the visual collaboration exactly so so um there are prisoners they have this dilemma by not making them prisoners we we fix the dilemma for them so that they can create a positive net outcome uh, for all Awesome. Thank, thank you, Ola, for tying this so clearly back to UX. Um, that was really well done as well. I am uh, certainly going to deep dive into some of your blog posts more now as well. Uh, there, I mean, there is, you're all over the place always, and but it, it, there's always a red thread. Uh, as we say in Swedish, we've been talking about red threads now. But um, uh, really, really important messaging for everyone uh, and certainly for everyone in UX as well. Thank you for joining us, Ola. Yeah, thank you. I got 
quite into the the underlying economics of all this with Ola. Uh, listening back, I, I definitely put my economist hat on a few times there. It was, which was wonderful, though, because we touched on economic social history, um, economics of production and, and labour economics. There were some, some wonderful things to get your teeth into um, and, and reflecting on it from a, from a design viewpoint or a UX viewpoint or a um, production of things in our organisations viewpoint. Yeah. I like how he started with uh, he's a person who's thinking all the time and it's it's so obvious how he also gets all of us to think in the way that he expresses himself. I think it's rather eloquent how he, he these are rather philosophical statements that he's expressing but so so it really makes you think about what it means for UX and what it means for business uh, essentially. Mm. But I like also how Ola, even though you, you're right, he's thinking all the time and some of the stuff is almost philosophical. Um, he's still mm. pragmatic. And yes. what he was saying mm. there about the um, about 30 years of social um, invention mm. that follows a technical innovation um, mm. is, oh, is something very practical about how we need to deal with this. That we, it's, it's, not, it's not something we can rush into. Yeah. I mean, we've talked to a lot of our guests about how, how the internet is a teenager, and I think that message is actually really, really important because I, I experience that a lot of people who get into the industry and are really frustrated about how slow things are moving also have to recognize that things have to move slowly to be able to include everyone on this journey. Or, as Ola said, that when we're, when we're dismantling old structures, we're creating voids. And... Yeah. And a lot of the time, what we're we're making progress now in the in the last thirty years, we've been just kicking down the occasional door, and then we're just like filling the void with something new, which also is not planned and not thought through. So what Ola, say, Ola was saying about um, dismantling old structures carefully, so you can build new structures carefully, is a very very valuable um, thought to take with you. And even now, thinking about if we're thinking about. COVID-19 and the, the corona pandemic as a systemic shock. It's it's interesting to just observe the world and what's happening and how pe quickly people are jumping to conclusions. And we don't know yet it, how the world will change uh, in a year or two because of this. Uh, but I think it's important that we move slowly still and, and be mindful of, of the changes we're making. Yeah, because I think, I think it is a system shock we're going to go through with the pandemic because it's global. Mm. Um, we don't have global events too often in this kind of way. Um, but there's still a risk that we're going we're gonna to fill the void with something that exists now and a quick polyfill, a quick solution to get us through it rather than, mm. you know, because we haven't planned for this. We didn't spend time before agreeing what we're going to do and, and fill the new void created by this system shock. But, um, mm. but at the same time, I think we've got the chance if this does because well, it's going on for a while we do have time to iterate learn and think and reflect on how we want it to be how, want, how we want the new normal to be new normal is a phrase that's coming up quite a bit and i think there's our opportunity pair that we're, we're going through a shock but we're not we're kind mm. of trapped in it we're like in a in a, like a mm. uh, in between like a gray zone where we're not it, mm. we're not before it we're not after it we are in it and that gives us a chance to iterate and think and maybe come with some agreement or desire some plan about what we wanted to be in the new normal right and as designers actually we can contribute to that by envisioning and describing and communicating the different types of futures that are possible after this yeah enabling the communication between people mm. and recommended reading reading 
do we? Well, you can read our podcast. We have transcripts for almost every single episode. But recommended listening um, for this time is um, episode two hundred and twenty-four, the business value of design with Gene Lidka. Now, the reason why I've chosen this one is because a lot, a fair bit of what we talked to now, all the ties in, aligns with what um, Gene talked to us about with delegation right. to people, to the workers, to people on the shop floor and design thinking and business strategy. Yeah, that's a really good one. And if you can spare a little bit of your time, then join our little community of volunteers. We're always looking for help with uh, transcripts and publishing. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. So, James, why did the Scarecrow win an award? I don't know, Pav. Why did the Scarecrow win an award? Because he was outstanding in his field. <laughs>